Alex, thank you, worship team. That was beautiful, beautiful spirit of the Lord present here in our worship this morning. It's exciting for me to have this opportunity to, am I super echoey? That's funny. It's exciting for me to have the opportunity to, to be up here, but in a different role than normal. Um, and I'm a little nervous, but God is good. <laughs> And God places us where we're supposed to go, and it's always good to step into things that are maybe a little bit outside of our comfort zone. So that's what I'm doing today. I'm saying yes, and I'm stepping in, and I'm thankful for the opportunity to be here. We are kicking off a brand new sermon series this morning, and guess what? It's the last sermon series for this school year. Holy smokes! <laughs> like, the year's almost done. In the Christian calendar today, we sit squarely between the cross and Pentecost. And that's the name of our new series where we're going to sit and park together for the next however many services we have left. Between the cross and Pentecost. This season is called Eastertide. If we were to look in Scripture to find where this time of the year was happening, we're at the end of the Gospels and right up until the beginning of the book of Acts. So as I've been reading through and studying these passages of Scripture over the last couple of weeks, I found a new pattern, and it's the pattern that I discovered that I want to talk to you about this morning. We're going to talk about rhythm, rehearsal, and readiness. Primarily, I'm focusing on the end of Luke 24, um, and beginning the book of Acts 1. Let's just get ourselves situated inside the story a little bit. Okay, Jesus was resurrected the day after the Passover. So probably in church or in your own scripture reading over the last couple of weeks, you've read about the appearances of the resurrected Christ to the disciples, right? And even though that was a 40-day period, Jesus really only appeared to them, what we see in Scripture is 10 or 11 times. So although there was that 40-day window between the resurrection and when Jesus ascended to heaven, the disciples really didn't have him with them a whole lot. He just kept, like, disappearing. And they spent most of the time waiting for him to show back up. So earlier, Mireille, thank you for reading scripture for us today, she read uh, the Emmaus Road narrative, which is one of those times that Jesus showed up to the disciples, okay? Um, we're going to pick up the narrative and read a little bit more of that at the end of Luke 24. I'm going to start at verse 36, and I think you're going to see it on the screen behind me. Um, so the two disciples that Mireille read to us about, right now they've been describing to the rest of the disciples what had happened when Jesus showed up on the road, and then how when he broke the bread, he revealed himself to them. And that's where we pick it up. And as they were saying these things, he himself stood among them. He said to them, peace to you. But they were startled and terrified and thought they were seeing a ghost. Why are you troubled, he asked them. And why do doubts arise in your hearts? Look at my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, because a ghost does not have flesh and bones, as you can see that I have. Having said this, he showed them his hands and feet. But while they still could not believe because of their joy and were amazed, he asked them, do you have anything here to eat? So they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it in their presence." 
Then he told them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. He also said, this is what is written, the Messiah would suffer and rise from the dead the third day, and repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And look, I am sending you what my father promised. As for you, stay in the city until you are empowered from on high. Then he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. And while he was blessing them, he left them and was carried up into heaven. After worshiping him, they returned to Jerusalem with great joy, and they were continually in the temple complex, blessing God. Thank you, Lord, for your word. So Jesus has just ascended to heaven. He's gone for real now. What were the disciples supposed to do? Well, he told them what to do. What did he say? He said, as for you, Stay in the city until you are empowered from on high. Stay put for now. We know that Pentecost came 10 days later, right? It was 10 days following the ascension that the Holy Spirit was unleashed on the disciples, but the disciples did not know that they were only going to be waiting for 10 days. Right? They didn't know that the feast of the early harvest that they'd always known was going to be any different this year than any other year. They didn't have like a countdown clock till the coming of the Holy Spirit. They didn't know that the church was going to be born that day. All that they knew was what Jesus had told them. And he said, I'm sending, the Father is sending what he has promised, stay and wait for it. They had to break stride. They had to learn a new rhythm. For these 10 days, they were learning the rhythm of waiting. So back to my question, what did they do? How did the disciples wait? Essentially, the disciples remained united in prayer and in worship, looking to the Father to fulfill what Jesus had promised. And I get this answer from two spots. We see it in what we just read in Luke 24 at verse 52. It says, after worshiping, worshiping him, they returned to Jerusalem, the city, with great joy, and they were continually in the temple complex, blessing God. If we skip over to Acts 1 and we land at verse 12, we see a similar thing. Then they returned to Jerusalem. When they arrived, they went to the room upstairs where they were staying. Those present were Peter, John, James, and Andrew, Philip, and Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, son of James. All of these were continually united in prayer, along with the women, including Mary, mother of Jesus, and his brothers. So basically, by Acts 1, verse 14, we've got about 20 people continually united in prayer, right? But incredibly, if you fast forward one verse and you go to verse 15, 
We have a whopping 120 people gathered in that. It's a big room, right? So without Jesus' immediate presence with them, more and more people were learning the new rhythm of waiting on God. Then we go through the rest of Acts 1, and basically we have the description of the, how they selected Matthias to replace Judas as one of the 12. And then Acts 2 starts, which is everyone's favorite, right? So Acts 2, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost had arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly, and this is where it gets really exciting, but this is where I'm going to stop, actually. Who wants to be like the Acts 2 church? Okay, who doesn't want to be like the Acts 2 church really, right? There's one person I read said, the Acts 2 church is a church full of miraculous promise, a church with the power of the Holy Spirit, a radical community that turns the world upside down, a church built on God's word, deep fellowship, authentic worship, and a genuine love for all people. We know that they were devoted to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer, right? They cared for one another, and the gospel spread like crazy. Who doesn't want to be part of something like that? It's good. But I think we can glamorize it just a little bit. I Googled Acts 2 Church the other day. You know how many hits I got? 188 million. Okay, we love the notion of Acts 2. We like the action of it, right? But something very significant was needed before activity. Something very significant was needed even before the empowerment of Pentecost. Acts 2 action was born in Acts 1, waiting. To be an Acts 2 church, we need to find the rhythm of the Acts 1 people. Between the ascension, when Jesus left, and Pentecost, when the church was born, this is where we're finding out what the disciples needed to be ready for the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, to be ready to be the Acts 2 church. And I'm gonna push it a little further, not just to be ready to be the Acts 2 church, but to be the church, because the Acts 2 church, baby church, right? All kinds of evidence in the beginning of Acts that says Acts 2 church is an infant. Okay, they're still primarily Jewish. They're not all ready to embrace the Gentile believers yet. Peter, he still doesn't even know what to do about food laws, and they have no idea what to do with circumcision, okay? They're still a baby church, but they're devoted, and they're characterized by love for each other and a love for God. I read a really cool um, study the other day out of the University of Aberdeen in Scotland, and what they were trying to discover is, is there any sort of um, pattern or relationship between the heartbeat of an unborn baby and the heartbeat of the baby's mother. And what was amazing that they discovered was that when a pregnant mother breathes in good rhythm, (sighs) 
then the heartbeat of that baby goes in perfect sync with her heartbeat. However, if the mother's breathing rhythm gets off or erratic, the baby's heart rate gets all out of sync with hers. If the Acts 2 church is just a baby, then in Acts 1, the church was still in the womb. The church was the unborn. And it was right here between the cross and Pentecost when the church was in utero, essentially, that the disciples were learning a new rhythm that they needed to keep their heartbeat in sync with the heartbeat of the Messiah who had just left this earth. They needed a new rhythm so that they would be ready to be empowered by the outpouring of the Holy Spirit so that they could be the Acts 2 church, the Acts 5 church, the Acts 7 church, the Acts 12 church, none of which were all that glamorous, by the way. And it's the same rhythm that we need to learn today to be today's church. So what is this rhythm I'm talking about? It's this. Gather in often. You all are a young, go-getter generation, and I love that about you. You want to go yesterday. You want your hands in the middle. You want to be on the move. You want to see things happen. You want to take action. And so I want to encourage you today to still remain in the rhythm of the Acts 1 people, gathering in often with God's people, with other believers for prayer and for worship and for the teaching of the word. Before Jesus ascended into heaven, he told his disciples to wait. He knew that if they didn't wait, they would not be able to fulfill their call and mission. If they just rushed ahead to save the world, they would fail. They already had three and a half years of theological and discipleship training with Jesus Christ, and they still needed this new rhythm. So they went to the upper room, and they continued together in prayer. Andrew Murray, in his book called The Full Blessing of Pentecost, writes this, the 10 days of waiting were for them days in which they were continually in the temple, praising and blessing God, and continuing instant in prayer and supplication. It is not enough for us to endeavor to strengthen desire and to hold fast to our confidence. The principal thing is to set ourselves in close and abiding contact with God. But we so love the action of the book of Acts, right? I mean, there's boldness, and there's bravery, and there's revelation, and there's rescue, and there's chaos, and there's courage. It's so active. But as I was studying it again last week, I was struck by how often it very specifically mentions that God's people were gathered together in prayer and worship, or they were on their way to prayer, or simply just that the disciples were together. There's so much active mission in the book of Acts that we love, 
But know this, the action is continually punctuated by the new rhythm. The active mission is born and bolstered in waiting. And hear me, this rhythm wasn't just needed for the 10 days up until Pentecost. This new rhythm was for always. Inhale, exhale. So let's just look at some of the examples across the book of, um, of Acts. I found over 20 times that they mentioned that the disciples were together. Let's start here, Acts 2, 46. And every day they devoted themselves to meeting together. Acts 3, verse 1. Now Peter and John were going up together to the temple complex at the hour of prayer. Acts 5, 12b. By common consent, they would all meet at Solomon's colonnade. Acts 12, 5. This is when Peter's imprisoned by King Herod. So Peter was kept in prison, but prayer was being made earnestly to God for him by the church. Acts 12, verse 12. The angel of the Lord released Peter from prison. And when he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John Mark, where many had assembled and were praying. Acts 13, verse 14, Saul and his companions were continuing on their journey. On the Sabbath day, they went to the synagogue and sat down. Acts 15, when they arrived in Jerusalem, they were welcomed in by the church. Acts 16, 16, once as we were on our way to prayer, Acts 16:40, after Paul and Silas left the jail, they went to Lydia's house to encourage the brothers who were obviously gathered together at Lydia's house. There's so much gathering. There's so much abiding. There's so much praying. There's so much waiting. Because this kind of waiting is not inactive. This kind of waiting is formative. The rhythm of gathering in and waiting on God forms us. And that's because rhythm invites rehearsal. What do I mean by that? Rhythm invites rehearsal. Any ideas? What do we do? Let's talk about rehearsal. What are some things, and tell me, what are some things we rehearse or practice for? Music. What else do we rehearse for? Weddings. Good one. I didn't think of that. What else? Sermons. I hope so. What else do we rehearse for? Charlie Brown, reading scripture, yes. Now what do we do when we rehearse? What happens in rehearsal? You correct problems. Repetitiveness, yes. Focusing, fine tuning. Do you know the popular uh, axiom or phrase about practice? Practice makes Okay, well, we really know practice makes better, right? Not perfect. But when we rehearse, we become more comfortable. We become more confident, and we become more skilled at whatever that task is, right? So it seems that every time the disciples gathered back together, they told and retold and retold and told again the story of God in Jesus Christ. They also kept up with a daily cycle of prayers. Some were private, but many of those were public. The early believers, they prayed the Lord's Prayer three times every day. And later in the book of Colossians, Ephesians, it seems like Paul's telling us that every time that they gathered together, it included the reading of scripture and the singing of psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. 
So why does it matter this morning in Sussex at Kingswood University that between the cross and Pentecost, the disciples learned this new rhythm of gathering in and waiting? Or why does it matter that their rhythm invited rehearsal? Let's try some Latin this morning. There's a fifth century Roman uh, from Rome, Latin phrase that has been, I've seen surfacing up a whole lot in the readings I've been doing over the last couple of years that have to do with worship and prayer. It's lex orandi, lex credendi. Can you say that? Lex Right, and one way to translate that is the rule of prayer is the rule of faith. Or the way that you pray and worship becomes the way that you believe. Now, I'm not going to suggest entirely that we can't separate our belief from our form of worship, but I am going to say our form of worship has a significant impact on what we believe. If we lengthen it a little bit, the phrase becomes lex orandi, lex credendi, lex vivendi. The way you pray and worship becomes the way you believe, which determines the way that you live. How we pray and worship, the heart with which we come to prayer and to worship, rehearses what we believe and it will affect how we will live out lives on, a, on the mission of Christ. So if rhythm invites rehearsal, we want our rehearsal to be good because it's only good rehearsal that's going to help us to develop and mature. I have a book I love, it's called Discover the Mystery of Faith. It's written by Glenn Packiam. He used to play with the band uh, Delirious, I think. Uh, but he's a pastor in a, a set of churches in Colorado Springs, a songwriter, recently I think ordained as an Anglican priest. Um, he's a great writer and he says, this is just a little thing, perhaps part of the reason the church is malnourished and our faith is anemic is because our worship services have become a theological happy meal. Many churches' rehearsals have become weak. They might be slick, but they're feeble. They might be shiny and super compelling, but they're not really a substantial, nourishing rehearsal of the believer's faith. <clears throat> Many of you in this room are here because you recognize God is speaking to you and calling you to lead the church. And you know what? In five years, you could be literally anywhere in the world. Some of you are gonna be lead pastors. Many of you are going to be staff pastors. Some of you will be worship planners, and many of you will volunteer in your local congregations. And I want to say this, as a worship leader, it's not just the worship pastor, it shouldn't be just the worship pastor who determines the trajectory of what the gathered body does when they come together. I hope and pray that all of you get and take the opportunity to impact what the body does when they gather together in worship. You should have the opportunity to ensure that your congregations develop good rhythm 
and good rehearsal of their faith. But what do I want you to do with this today? Because today you're still sitting in these seats. I'm going to ask you this morning to consider two kind of big questions. They kind of have sub-questions, but let's, we'll break it in two. First, does your life already have a natural rhythm of gathering in often with other believers to worship and to pray? Are you rehearsing your faith well with other people? Let me unpack this a little more. Can you take an honest look at your engagement level in worship and in prayer? And I don't mean outward expressions. I'm talking about what's in here, what's going on in here when you come together with the body at church on Sunday, at chapel on Tuesday or Friday, or wherever you find yourself with other believers. Do you simply come so you can check off a worship attendance form? Or do you come because you expect to encounter the living God? Do you come because it's what you do as a Christian? Or do you come because you love to be together with God's people? Do you get caught up in what you don't like about what's happening in the room? Or do you get caught up in the presence of the Holy Spirit? If you love to gather with God's people, if you love to come together with prayer and worship, then I suspect you're already finding in yourself readiness for ministry. But if you find that you're having a hard time sharing your faith, if you find that you feel kind of resistant about getting involved in other people's lives or signing up to, yes, I'll volunteer for that ministry, then I want to suggest to you today that maybe the rhythm of your life is an area that you could start to examine. How, even today, can you move to the next step of starting this rhythm and loving this rhythm of gathering in with God's people. Big question two. How will you in your future ministries help other people to create regular rhythm in their lives? How are you going to ensure that the rehearsal time that you help them to establish is good rehearsal? I want to challenge you even today to start to, be, to, to, start to consider the depth the variety of the kinds of activities that you're going to offer your congregation to do when they come together. Will you make room for much prayer and many kinds and expressions of prayer? Will you make room for a whole lot of singing, but also for silence? Will you make room for confession, for testimony, for all kinds of scripture to permeate the atmosphere? I want to challenge you as your vision casting services for Harvest House, for dunamis rallies, for summer camps, for brand new church plants, or for congregations of 100-year-old survivors. I want to encourage you to look at what you're offering. Is it a nourishing meal or just a happy meal? Because why does it matter, ultimately, 
Why does it matter what we do when we come together? Here's why. Because rhythm invites rehearsal, and rehearsal makes ready. Okay? Your role as pastors, as worship leaders, as disciples of Jesus Christ is to disciple other people and send them out. On Friday, Dr. Wooden was here, and he gave a super example of this from the 13th chap- chapter of Acts. He was reminding us that there were um, prophets and teachers in the church in Antioch. And verses 2 and 3 say, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, they were together the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. So, after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them out. They made gathering a priority, and in it, they were made ready to send and be sent. It's just not enough for worship to be a couple of songs and a message. It's just not enough to be cutting edge and excellent. It's just not sufficient for our corporate gatherings even to be attractive to people outside the church. That's not enough. But it is absolutely necessary that our worship gatherings help people inhale a depth of content that helps move them from being juvenile to being mature in their faith so they can live out their faith exhale with boldness, with courage in their communities and all around the world. So, how do I endeavor to do this? Because I am a worship planner and I am one that gets to speak into the ministries of up and coming worship leaders. Two years ago, I was taking a theology directive course with Dr. Gable. It was the last prerequisite that I needed to get into the master's program that, praise Jesus, I'm three quarters of the way through. So thankfully, Dr. Gable let me uh, make up my own project so that it would actually have an impact on my current ministry, which was here. Um, And so what I decided to do with that project was to examine the theology of the songs that we regularly were singing together here at Kingswood. So I looked in our planning center, top songs, whatever, and I gathered together, I think it was, I can't remember if it was 20 or 25 of the songs that we most consistently were singing together as a group. And then I dissected each and every one of those songs, looking for two particular things. The first thing I was looking for was, were the songs that we were singing adequately expressing the triune nature of God? Were we singing about God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit? Secondly, what I was looking for also was, were the songs that we were singing um, helping us to discover the dual nature, God's role and our role in our pursuit together of holiness? The songs that we sing when we come together in the gathered body teach us theology. There's just no doubt about it. You stick music and rhyme and meter onto words, and they stick, okay? And they teach because we, we hum them, we sing them wherever we go. They leave with us. So this is why worship songwriters and planners have a grave responsibility before God for what they're teaching, Okay? So I was starting to pay better attention to the theology that was hidden inside of the music that I was giving you to sing. 
And honestly, you know what? We've scrapped quite a number of songs since that time. And over these last two years, together with Dr. Beth and all of the rest of the, the student worship leaders, we've been creating more and more stringent filters on what songs we're going to, to allow and choose us that we sing, okay? I also started looking more closely at the language that we use when we come into worship. Uh, maybe if you've been here over a little bit of the last couple of years, you've noticed that we're trying to be more and more intentional with the words that we speak and the words that we give you to speak in worship, whether it's our exhortations, whether it's the prayers that we offer or the readings that we have. We're working on writing a lot of our prayers ahead of time. We're working on taking scripture and bringing our prayer up out of that. We're even grabbing prayers from people in generations that have gone before us and we're praying those words. Because we've discovered that as believers, we need to learn how to pray. And one of the best ways to learn language is imitate someone else's language, right? So just like the disciples learned to pray by Jesus teaching them that prayer and then repeating it three times a day, and the early believers typically learned how to pray by praying through the Psalms over and over and over again, as a body, we will be better, more solidly formed in our faith if our corporate language of prayer is taught and stretched and challenged. Now, the theology in our songs and the ways that we pray, that's only two of probably hundreds of things that we could consider when we look at the menu that we're offering and say, is this nourishing or not? But those are two. I just wanted to give you two examples of things that I look at as what I'm going to offer for you to do. And none of this is tied to any one style of worship. Okay, I'm not talking style, I'm talking content. Content can sit within a myriad of styles, okay? And I think that's important to note today because corporate worship, the gathering in often, just like the Acts 1 believers did, is not primarily about experience. It's not primarily about preference. It's not even primarily about mission or reaching people. It's primarily about spiritual formation because people who are spiritually formed mature in their faith. They will live sent on mission. The Acts 1 believers learned a rhythm that they carried on throughout their lives and ministries. In the midst of the boldness and the bravery and the revelation and the rescue and the chaos and the courage, they still maintained a rhythm of gathering in, of waiting on God, of rehearsing their faith. And he, God, met these imperfect people there and he shaped them to be courageous evangelists and warriors. He met them in tongues of fire and in a rushing wind. He met them in broken chains and healed afflictions. He met them in refreshment for weary bodies and renewal for their faith and in the powerful and abiding presence of the Holy Spirit among them. And there, in that, God affirmed them that they were ready to send and to live sent. 
There's a verse in Daniel, chapter 11, verse 32, that says, the people who know their God will display strength and take action. These disciples, they knew their God together because they practiced the rhythm of gathering in often and well to be made ready to live sent, to display strength and to take action. Between the cross and Pentecost, the disciples learned a new rhythm, a formative rhythm of rehearsal. And it was exactly what the Acts 1 believers needed to be ready to be filled with the Spirit of God and to be the church. One more time, rhythm invites rehearsal. And rehearsal makes ready to send and to live sent.